Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Spring arrived this week, and so did lockdown in London and much of Anglo-America and Europe. Spring, the season when the earth opens up, the sun soars higher in the sky, and everything's reborn, and yet, all around people are drawing in with fear of an unknown illness and death. It's the kind of irony that poets play with. We need more poetry in day-to-day life, especially now, when everyone has time to contemplate the deep distillations of experience that poets create, and so I thought I would make this podcast about poetry. Earlier this week, as spring approached and it was obvious to everyone except Boris Johnson that London would have to be shut down, I realized I would miss one of the annual highlights of my personal calendar. Just after the vernal equinox, late March, early April, I like to drive my family west out of London to look at the newborn lambs. Well, I'm a city boy, and lambs seem like wildlife to me. Anyway, last year we went all the way past Sirencester to the edge of the Cotswold Escarpment, spent the night, and then we got our boots muddy and saw lambs aplenty. Anyway, the memory and the realization that there will be no experience to add to my store of lambing season memories made me think of a William Blake poem from Songs of Innocence, The Lamb. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed? By the stream and o'er the mead gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright, gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I, a child, and thou a lamb, we are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. The poet John Clare, a farm laborer by birth, also wrote about newborn lambs. And when I read this one, I sometimes think it's not actually poetry. It's just sort of writing about what he saw in the fields. The spring is coming by many signs. The trays are up, the hedges broken down. That fence the haystack and the remnant shines like some old antique fragment weathered brown. And where suns peep in every sheltered place, the little early buttercups unfold a glittering star or two till many trace the edges of the blackthorn clumps in gold. And then a little lamb bolts up behind the hill and wags his tail to meet the yo, and then another, sheltered from the wind, lies all his length is dead and lets me go close by and never stirs but baking lies with legs stretched out as though he could not rise. I will miss my lambs this spring. I had a brief beginning in journalism as a copy aide in the style section of the Washington Post. My job was to answer phones, pigeonhole mail, take dictation, and learn journalism by watching others do it. I hustled a bit for stories between times and found myself the unofficial poetry correspondent of the Post. The paper didn't do many stories on poetry, but the ones that got done on the arts pages usually fell in my lap. 
The Library of Congress was having a William Blake exhibition of some kind, and I went to interview the curator. He unwrapped the library's original copy of Songs of Innocence and of Experience, illustrations made by Blake himself. He handed it to me. I held the book William Blake had held. The images wrapped around the words, delicate ink lines and soft water colorings in, illuminated with flecks of gold leaf. It was a treasure. The poems so brief, taking up no more than a page, and many of them are about spring, or about new beginnings, about childhood. They're wonderful, and they offer a source of cheer in this time of concern. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee, on a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped, he wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sang the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed, and I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs every child may joy to hear. The Shepherd How sweet is the shepherd's sweet lot! From the morn to the evening he stays. He shall follow his sheep all the day, and his tongue shall be filled with praise. For he hears the lamb's innocent call, and he hears the ewe's tender reply. He is watching while they are in peace, for they know when their shepherd is nigh. The Blossom Merry, merry sparrow, under leaves so green, a happy blossom sees you, swift as arrow, seek your cradle narrow near my bosom. Pretty, pretty robin, under leaves so green, a happy blossom hears you sobbing, sobbing. Pretty, pretty robin, near my bosom. The Little Boy Lost Father, Father, where are you going? Oh, do not walk so fast. Speak, father, speak to your little boy, or else I shall be lost. The night was dark, no father was there. The child was wet with dew. The mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. The little boy found. The little boy, lost in the lonely fen, led by the wandering light, began to cry. But God, ever nigh, appeared like his father in white. He kissed the child and by the hand led, and to his mother brought, who in sorrow pale through the lonely dale the little boy weeping sought. Divine Image To mercy, pity, peace, and love, O oh, pray in their distress, and to these virtues of delight return their thankfulness. For mercy, pity, peace, and love is God our Father, dear, and mercy, pity, peace, and love is man, his child, and care. For mercy has a human heart, pity a human face, and love the human form divine, and peace the human dress. Then every man of every clime that prays in his distress prays to the human form divine, love, mercy, pity, peace, and almost love the human form in heathen, Turk, or Jew, where mercy, love, 
and pity dwell, their God is dwelling too. On another sorrow. Can I see another's woe and not be in sorrow too? Can I see another's grief and not seek for kind relief? Can I see a falling tear and not feel my sorrow's share? Can a father see his child weep nor be with sorrow filled? Can a mother sit and hear an infant groan, an infant fear? No, no, never can it be. Never, never can it be. And can he who smiles on all hear the wren with sorrow small, hear the small bird's grief and care, hear the woes that infants bear, and not sit beside the next, pouring pity in their breast, and not sit the cradle near, weeping tear on infant's tear, and not sit both night and day, wiping all our tears away? Oh no, never can it be, never, never can it be. He doth give his joy to all. He becomes an infant small. He becomes a man of woe. He doth feel the sorrow too. Think not thou canst sigh a sigh, and thy maker is not by. Think not thou canst weep a tear, and thy maker is not here. Oh, he gives to us his joy, that our grief he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. Holy Thursday Is this a holy thing to see in a rich and fruitful land, babes reduced to misery, fed with a cold and usurous hand? Is that trembling cry a song? Can it be a song of joy? And so many children poor, it is a land of poverty, and their sun does never shine, and their fields are bleak and bare, and their ways are filled with thorns, it's eternal winter there. For where'er the sun does shine, and where'er the rain does fall, babes should never hunger there, nor poverty the mind appall. Anyway, a decade and a half after I held a first edition of Songs of Innocence and of Experience in my hands, I had another wonderful Blake moment. I interviewed Philip Levine for an hour on the now-defunct public radio program, The Connection. Levine had a fair amount in common with Blake and John Clare. He was a working-class man. He spent years on assembly lines in and around Detroit. He was a fighter, and by instinct and experience, a man of the left. He had to struggle for his education. It was necessary to help him make sense of and access the poetic gifts with which he was born. Levine loved Blake, and the conversation turned towards the poet's radicalism. The Connection was an interview call-in program, and about midway through the interview, a caller came on and asked if Philip Levine knew a poem by William Blake, and did those feet in ancient time. Levine started to recite. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's? And I interrupted. I said, oh, you mean Jerusalem? Levine testily said, no, it's called And did those feet in ancient time? But, but it's a hymn, I said, called Jerusalem. We sing it at the proms on the BBC every year. The poem, Levine corrected, is called And did those feet in ancient time? Ah, I see. And then Levine and the caller and I passed the lines among us. 
although I found it really hard not to sing them, because that's how I know the poem. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green, and was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O oh, clouds unfold, bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And my memory, I may be making this up, is that all three of us said that last verse together. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The reason I was interviewing Levine was he had a new collection of poems out called The Mercy. The title poem is something to meditate on in the hours while we wait for our world to return to health. The Mercy. The ship that took my mother to Ellis Island 83 years ago was named The Mercy. She remembers trying to eat a banana without first peeling it, and seeing her first orange in the hands of a young Scot, a seaman, who gave her a bite and wiped her mouth for her with a red bandana and taught her the word orange, saying it patiently over and over. A long autumn voyage, the days darkening with the black waters calming as night came on, then nothing as far as her eyes could see in space without limit rushing off to the corners of creation. She prayed in Russian and Yiddish to find her family in New York. Prayers, unheard or misunderstood, were perhaps ignored by all the powers that swept the waves of darkness before she woke, that kept the mercy afloat, while smallpox raged among the passengers and crew until the dead were buried at sea with strange prayers in a tongue she could not fathom. The Mercy I read on the yellowing pages of a book I located in a windowless room of the library on 42nd Street sat 31 days offshore in quarantine before the passengers disembarked. There a story ends. Other ships arrived, Tancred out of Glasgow, the Neptune registered as Danish, Umberto IV, the list goes on for pages, November gives way to winter. The sea pounds this alien shore. Italian miners from Piemonte dig under towns in western Pennsylvania only to rediscover the same nightmare they left at home. A nine-year-old girl travels all night by train with one suitcase and an orange. She learns that mercy is something you can eat again and again while the juice spills over. You can wipe it away with the back of your hands, and you can never get enough. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. If you liked hearing these poems and want to hear some more, drop me a line at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and let me know. 
in this time of self-isolation, it's a way to connect. And while you're at the website, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Stay healthy.